Let's stick a giant map up here because that's what everybody does before they start a sermon. That should make sense, right? Several months ago, we uh, dug into James chapter 2, verse 26 specifically that says, For just like the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. Now, they're not talking about faith in the church like we are. It's talking about the faith that we have in the Lord. But we can apply it we, as a church collectively. That if we, are to be, if we are to be people of faith, if we're to say what we believe, and this is the God that we follow, and this is the way he's changed my life and everything, but our works, the things that we do with our bodies, the things that we do with our time, our minds, our, our speech, don't match what we say we believe, it's empty. James is saying your faith is dead. It's, there's no life to it. So that challenged us leadership-wise and then filtering out into the church that how are we going to be a church of works that are generated from a heart that wants to please God. And so we spent a lot of time talking about, and, and some of you are, are new. I met a lot of uh, very new folks um, this morning. And so I'm giving you context so that you can be brought up to speed as best as we can in the short time that we have together this morning. We are going to be dismissing a little bit early this morning um, as we do on the third Sunday of the month. This is what we call our advanced Sunday. So if you're new to faith, this is going to be different for you. It's something we've been doing now probably for several years. I think the time just creeps up on us. But um, what we do is we ask our men to stay behind in the service here um, after we're done for about 10 or so minutes. We have a very specific challenge, a couple of things to, to throw at the guys, things that go splat. So we'll see if they can duck quick enough. No, we're not throwing those kind of things. So we're going to ask our gentlemen to stick behind, and uh, Michelle Kenny will have something for our ladies in the hub, the newly decorated, very cool-looking uh, gathering space that's out there. So thank you again for all of your patience, waiting for that to come to fruition, and uh, we're very pleased with the results. So couple more things to do. I know you're going to hear me say this every time I talk about the hub. There's always going to be a couple more things to do, but uh, for the most part, looking good and ready to go. So uh, when we dismiss, ladies, if you can gather out in the hub, give Michelle your full attention. Guys, come in here. Give uh, Jeff D. on your full attention, and we'll go from there. But what we did was we, um, we, we launched this campaign that we called Moving to 750. 750 represents a number of people, and we didn't get too, too hung up on the number of people as much as the moving part. Because the number, as we said, of the results are up to the Lord. Does he want faith to be a church of 750? Honestly, we don't know. <laughs> so we were quite honest with, it, with you all about that. We put a number out to have a goal. We're people. We like to have something we're shooting for. We're moving in that direction. But one thing we knew the Lord wanted us to do is be a church about several things that we believe come right from Scripture. And so we built this campaign off three uh, pieces that we think are foundational to any church in the Christian life. But we wanted to say, how do we uh, grab hold of this more concretely for the next 12 months? And we started with prayer, which is where we should start. Building a foundation of this effort on going to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you have for us? Not God, what are our ideas that you can get behind and bless? But instead, lean on the Lord. Lord, where are you at work? How can we join in? How can we do the things that you're about? And so we wanted to build an effort of prayer in our church. And so our body of, of believers here at Faith really responded to that challenge. We threw out a lot of different options. Um, we opened up the, uh, the hub area or the entryway area on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. and said, if you can come in and join us for about 15, 20 minutes of prayer, 
and you could stay longer if you want, but people have to get to go into work and things. Come and, and join us. Pastor Ben's been leading that now for months with a very um, stable core group of people. The, the people are showing up each and every week. We keep checking with them. Hey, have your numbers dwindled off? Is it time to pull the plug on this? Because we don't have any problem doing that here. And uh, he said, no, people are still coming. We're engaged. We're participating. People are still praying. Pastor Bill's been updating us pretty much on a weekly basis through a vlog that is giving us our focus on what we can be praying about, both for the, the church and the culture, but also for our lives personally. Um, we did a real big um, effort to do what we call Walk 901, and that was covering our zip code in prayer. And what we asked you to do is pick some streets, your neighborhood or another neighborhood, and walk through and pray uh, through the streets of Waterville, Winslow, and the surrounding areas, and ask the Lord to give the people of faith an opportunity to encounter the folks that live here, and ask um, for the, for the uh, protection of the Lord to withstand the onslaught of the enemy who we believe is alive and well, his name being Satan. And so, Lord, you know, protect, give us an opportunity to reclaim uh, this area for Christ. Help us to have further inroads as a church in this area. And we asked you to come in the following Sunday and report to us what you did just by highlighting the area. And this is what a completed map looks like after several months of walking the streets of Waterville, Winslow. So please give yourselves a hand for completing that. Had to have been, I think, about 125 or so people that joined the effort and took part of that. So I wanted to update you all that that is accomplished. And we'll also be launching in November the thing that we called Prayer Exchange. And many of you signed up to be praying for one another, specifically by name. And so in November, we intend to roll that out and have you all participate in the Prayer Exchange. So we built this uh, campaign on the foundation of prayer and then wanting to do more to bolster the service within faith, the, the opportunities that we have to serve and, and do the ministries here. We have connect groups that meet during the week, but we also have a lot of things that take place on a Sunday morning. So we invited more people to take place in that. And that was a difficult ask because we have such a great percentage of faithers that are already involved in the ministry, but we figured we needed about 75 more. If the Lord were to increase us, if we said, okay, what does a church like 750 uh, average attendees look like? We said we probably could use about another 75 people joining our ministry teams. And right out of the gate, about 30 to 40 people said, okay, count me in. I'll do that. And I'm happy to report out of those 40-ish people that signed up with interest, 35 have been engaged and plugged in and have joined teams and stuff. So we appreciate you all coming together and doing that so we have, you know, another a goal to hit. So um, don't be shy if we contact you by name and say, how come you're not doing anything? And then you can hide behind the seat and things like that. So we expect, let me just make a quick comment about this. We expect that when you talk about growth and you talk about getting a little busier and you talk about serving everything, some people, as many of you have, respond like, this is great. Something to sink our teeth into, something to get behind. While a lot of other people will be like, eh, I kind of like blending in. I don't think this is the place for me. Because it gets uncomfortable as a church gets moving towards a goal as we start to expand and do those things. So don't be discouraged what you see happening with numbers because that some of that is the process that the Lord does in order to rebuild. And so uh, we're just trusting the Lord's doing something that, that he's in control of, not anything that we're in control of. And so service is happening. Service is taking place. Got a great new team of people serving the hub, a lot of energetic, enthusiastic people pouring coffee and doing all those kinds of things. A lot of those folks are new to the process and, uh, 
And so we, we can't thank them enough for all that they're doing. You heard Pastor Ben talk about parking lot attendance. All this stuff is just starting to percolate, and all these things are starting to, uh, to uh, take hold. And so we're excited to see that. And then the last thing that we did was we said, well, let's, let's make sure that we're always keeping our eye on outreach, that we're always looking toward, towards being the church outside the church walls. And so the third pillar, if you will, of our campaign is reach. And so we wanted that to be specifically out there, being the church, being uh, in the community, doing the things that we think we can do well, not the things that everyone else is doing, but the things we think we can get behind this and do pretty well. And we come up with several ideas. There's a lot of creativity that's gone into this. This goes back to even before we launched the campaign. We did our trunk or treat thing last year that everybody did so well and had thousands of people come through the, the parking lot. This year it's uh, even better planned and better organized and things. And so we're going to have another go at that. A great start with the uh, parade last year at the, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, all of these things, and that's still continuing. But then we said, let's get involved with some uh, cleanup in the, in the city. We did that on a Sunday afternoon. A lot of people showed up. It was well-received, well-noticed. Um, and then we said to you, how about we adopt some classrooms? Let's adopt some teachers that are in the school system, excuse me, <clears throat> and we want to make sure that uh, we can give them the school supplies that we hear so often run dry during the course of the school year. So you all responded and brought us just truckloads of school supplies, and then we lined up with the teachers that we knew to say, here, take these things in, and if the opportunity arises, you know, don't force it on people. Or if somebody said, where'd you get your stuff? Oh, my church took care of me, or my church, hey, they said they'd take your class too. Is there anything you need? And to give the teachers the opportunity to be that beacon, that light in their school system, which, as we know, is in the headlines now, and it's a greatly needed thing. And so uh, you got behind all that. Let me tell you how we never know where the reach of that is going to go. Uh, it was in September, and um, I was doing one of my former favorite activities, and that's being on my boat. Um, there's, there's a point to that point of former activity. Um, as I sat in the middle of Snow Pond, Mesolonsky Lake, whatever you locals call this place, it's got 8,000 names, Sitting in the middle of the lake in September, there's nobody on the lake, five o'clock in the afternoon, so you can imagine it's getting a little dark, you know, not terrible, but just a little bit dark, and I like to go out, turn the engine off, read, do something just away. has nothing to do with my nine kids, don't even go there. I just like to, it's very biblical, Jesus launched out in the boat, so that's what I do. Well, when I went to restart it and come back in, it wouldn't start on me, and it sounded like it was just getting worse with every key turn. Something gnarly was happening. It wasn't pretty. And so I'm thinking, okay, normally, because this has happened just a couple times before, normally someone will come by and I'll just humble myself and ask for a tow in, and that will take care of itself. But there's nobody on the lake today. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I got emergency paddles for a reason. It's these little orange things that look like they could barely move a canoe. And this is a 20-foot boat that sits lots of people. And I'm doing this thinking maybe I'm getting somewhere. I have no idea. But anyway, I'll speed this up because as finally a boat is coming across between me and the shore that I'm heading towards, I have this conversation in my head. Do I do this or am I, do I tell myself I'm getting there because I'm, you know prideful person. I don't want someone to come over and see me all broken down. I said, okay, I'll do it. I wave my orange oar at them. They give me one of these and keep on going. (laughs) 
So a less prideful person would know how to call for help in that situation, but I didn't. So fortunately, as they get to the other side and see that I'm surrendered to, okay, I guess this is my lot in life. My final boat trip will be with a paddle. They saw my need, came beeline right for me, and as he got closer, I was thinking, oh, no, I know this guy. Now it's getting even worse. He comes up and goes, hey, that was my boat. I bought my boat from this dude two years ago. And he's such a nice guy. A lot of people around the town know him and everything. He's a real upstanding guy. And he hangs his head. I'm so sorry. I probably sold you a bad boat. I said, it's been a great boat. These things happen. It's old, you know, that kind of thing. He has his two adult daughters, young adult ladies, very polite, you know, outgoing, engaging. The apple fell right off the tree there and stuff. Just nice ladies. And um, so, again, keep in mind, I don't want to admit that I needed help and everything. And so they rope me up and they're towing me over and I'm doing the drag of shame, I like to call it, third time in a row, <laughs> leaning on my boat, just going, I can't believe this. And they're being nice to me. And of course, on the outside, I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> and in inside, I'm feeling a dream dying, you know, wilting away. One of the girls says, are you still with faith? Oh, it gets worse. They, now they know where I work. So then I'm recalculating, oh, what did I say? How did I act? What was my attitude like? She goes, did you guys give school supplies to the Belgrade school system? I said, yes, I, yes, we did. She goes, I got mine today. Thank you so much. That was the greatest thing anyone could have done when I needed it most and everything. I was like, all right, fine. So the drag of shame turned into a moment of testimony and praise for all of you folks. Thank you for making an awkward situation uh, worthy of thanking the Lord for. So... But that is what we're talking about. That's the effect and the impact that we're trying to have in ways that we don't predict, in ways that we can't own, we can't manage. That's just the work that the Lord's going to do. So this is what we've been about as we've been trying to apply James 2.26 as a church, as a body, doing this together. And the, and the body of faith has applied that and is going. However, as we continue to move through the letter of James... He is not just talking about church campaigns. In fact, he's not talking about church campaigns at all. He is, he is aiming for the heart of the individual to be ready to represent Christ at any given time, at the drop of a hat, because of the integrity and the character that lies within. And so if we just applied James in this broad kind of, hey, church, let's get busy, let's have some fun together and everything, we would be misapplying the intent of the letter. And so we're going to take a step back to chapter one because we moved forward in order to um, launch this campaign in May. So we're going to take a step back and uh, piece by piece, we'll work our way through James. But uh, as we come to chapter back to chapter one, just a couple of verses help us recalibrate us as a person, help us to keep in check. What is our character saying about the God that we're trying to represent? What is our personal conduct doing to represent my faith that I claim is alive? But are my works backing it up? So James comes back to us and says in verse 19, he says, this, you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I look at this phrase. Uh, we asked the question at the, at the outset. I don't know if you saw the title slide or not, but is it time to get angry? And there's a lot of different ways we can interpret that question. Some of you are geared up and keyed up on a particular issue or a thing, and you're like, yes, he's going to talk about my thing. 
whatever it is. Now we're going to get angry about it. Or some of you are like, I'm kind of an angry person. He's probably going to be pointing right at me and saying, you can't do that. So let's see what is James getting at. I, look, I like to boil it down to kind of an equation. James is saying you, you take one ear, you add another ear, you subtract a mouth, and then you're going to get faithfulness or wisdom. So I see a math formula in what James is saying here. And so I believe that the Lord built the human body to teach us a lesson. He gave us two ears and one mouth, and he probably wants us to use them in that proportion. James seems to be backing that up. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. King David, you'll know King David from the Old Testament, or mighty warrior, great leader, had three men in particular, probably had more, but three men that Second Samuel seems to note that were swift to hear. Uh, David was uh, in the midst of battle. It's how it always went for David. Um, and uh, probably way after the battle or a night of kind of bedding down and thinking, David had what most of us would when you're thinking about home. You're removed from home. You uh, think about the comforts of home. Even if it's nothing that special, it's special to you because it's what you're familiar with. David kind of says out loud, he says, oh, do you know what I could go for right now? I could go for the water that comes from that area right by the gates of Bethlehem. You know, you know the one I'm talking about? I was like, oh, that stuff's amazing. And David's like, oh, I could go for that right now. Well, they're in the middle of a war campaign. They're hunkered down in their camp. The enemy's camp is between them and the gate that, and the water that David's talking about. David has three men around him who are swift to hear. So what they do is they take it upon themselves to break through the enemy camp to go retrieve the water that their king has requested and then they make it back safely and they give it and present it to their king you see swift to hear is so closely akin to service and james is saying all of us must be quick to hear because you just think about the practical interaction that you have with people around you when you start by listening what you're already presenting is a posture of what does this person need from me how do i put my agenda aside and focus on what they're trying to say to me and so David had these men around him that were swift to hear. They put it in action. They, they heard what their king said, and they said, let's, let's, let's make a plan tonight. Let's go do this. Can you imagine how blown away he'll be if we bring him the water? Now, it didn't quite turn out the way they wanted because David was basically just saying something he didn't think would come true. It came true, and he says, I'm not going to drink this water while my, my mighty warriors sacrifice their life to, life to retrieve it. And it goes on to kind of talk about how great these men were, but they were swift to hear, and David appreciated all that they did. All he had to say was, I really wish I could have dot, dot, dot. And they paid attention, they heard. So James is saying that you and I have to be swift to serve or swift to hear. And then he continues and says, so then that will also mean that if you're, you know, Kind of basic logic here. If you're listening first, then you're already pausing this. You're already stopping to speak. And you're holding back for a second, giving the Holy Spirit within you an opportunity to help you reorient your thoughts. What am I going to do in this situation? He says, be swift to hear and slow to speak, to just bite your tongue. So he's putting it uh, in an order for us that is pretty practical, pretty easy to, uh, to address. He, we're warned in Proverbs 10:19. if you're if you're not familiar with, with Proverbs, I mean, we're all familiar with the concept of what Proverbs are, but Proverbs in the Bible is a, um, is a I would almost consider it like a, a tweet-sized version or size of wisdom. 
something that what's a what's a tweet is it 140 something characters is that what it is so um, I just got a smartphone last year so I'm starting to learn these things um, but you picture wisdom ha- I mean uh, Proverbs has wisdom in these con- condensed bite-sized but profound uh, uh, statements and James is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its focus on wisdom and its, its ability. You're able to kind of segment some of these things like we are with verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1. And Proverbs tells us in, in chapter 10, verse 19, it says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. In other words, let's English this up a little bit more. When you gab, gab, jibber, jabber, wah, 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 chances are you're going to trip over yourself because you've given yourself a higher percentage of opportunity to fail. You're going to talk, 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 which means something that's going to come out shouldn't have come out because it just flows. Very practical, these proverbs. Huh, who knew? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise and isn't restraint the thing that uh, or the lack of restraint the thing that seems to get us in the most trouble i was thinking about restraint a little bit because i was kind of going through the flow of this message and things and watching and listening and participating with the worship team and i was thinking how appropriate it is i I know i i kind of brag a lot about the worship team and the musicians that we have and stuff i have an opportunity to serve with them and play with them and and see how good they are you know each one of these players I could go down individually all the different things I know about how skilled they are. Each one of them could dominate the entire song. You know, our, our bass player, I mean, this guy, Scott, he carries a tuba like in his trunk and can play like um, Veggie Tales, I heard. That's what he's famous for. He can do his Veggie, boom, boom, boom. Anyway, but he's a musician. He, he more than just Veggie Tales. Uh, these guys are all over the place. Our drummer, even along with Pastor Bill, if you can see the stuff they could do when no one else is watching, it's crazy. Guitar players, the smoke starts coming from their fretboards, when, again, when, when they're not doing worship songs and stuff. And my daughter Madison on the keyboard writes music that I'm just like, how do you do that with lyrics and all that kind of stuff? It's crazy. These people, they know what they're doing. And yet, do any of you get the sense that they're just trying to dominate the song with their individual skill? We have this phrase that we use all the time where it says, well, how do we serve the song? The song is a certain way. We want people to participate in worship. How does my skill, my availability serve the song? That's what restraint looks like. And I'm awed by every time I see, especially coming out of such young people, showing the restraint that says it's not about what I can do. It's what the Lord's asking of me. And so Proverbs is saying, if you don't guard your tongue, even James is going to go on and talk about the tongue more, I believe, in chapter 2. He's saying it's, it gets deadly. We're all watching what's happening in California with fires, and James says your tongue is that capable. It sparks just a little bit, and it sets the whole thing ablaze, and it's on your back porch, and you say, we've got to leave because it's just destroying our home. That's what our tongue will do. And then this is where he links it. He says, okay, the other stuff you can kind of fake if you're good. If you're a good student or a good actor, you can say, okay, so uh, practical human wisdom, I can say I should listen more than I speak. I don't even really need the power of Christ in me to do that. I can fake that. It's, it's kind of a thing that you can fake a little while with your flesh or with your human ability. And James says, well, I'm not leaving it there. I'm not staying above the, the water line to use my dreadful boat analogy you know the the boat looks okay on the top when they're coming by and they're waving at me they think everything's good but i know that what's happening below the surface is not functioning 
It's not working. I'm not able to get to where I'm supposed to go because of what's happening or not happening below the surface. This is what the Bible does when it directs things towards our hearts, because that is the innermost us. That is who we are deep down inside. And when that is broken, Jesus says that what comes out is full of wickedness and cursing and thefts and adulteries and fornications, all these things, because it is being produced from within and blah comes out. And so James says, I'm not camping on just telling you how to listen well and bite your tongue once in a while. He says, and do not get angry. Be slow. I should say that better. Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now James is starting to meddle. Now he's starting to get to the place that we get uncomfortable with. He doesn't know what I get angry about. How can he tell me I'm supposed to get slow to it? If I don't get angry about this, nobody will. We start making all kinds of justifications. This is where it starts to move from above the water line that everyone can see and starts getting into the area that now gets uncomfortable, that we have to start doing some inventory and thinking about what God's up to. James says, be slow to anger. There's such a close link between our speech and our anger. It seems as though that the two are so intertwined and connected that the thing that we're angry about is going to come out in words, isn't it? Or it's going to come out in the things that we can't say because we're biting our tongue so hard and it's all over our face. Anger seems to be that little thing that's steering the direction our tongue's going to go. Now, some of you are astute students of the Bible and know the Bible, and you could say, no, wait a second, he didn't say don't get angry. James isn't saying that all anger is sinful, and absolutely he is not. Psalms tells us in, in uh, seven eleven of Psalms that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So do we think God has an anger problem? Does he have the inability to control himself because he just gets angry every day? There's something new to get angry about. Here goes God again, just getting angry. God expresses his anger, his indignation every single day. If we are going to condemn anger in and of itself, we're condemning God, and we certainly don't dare do that. But God is angry towards the things that are an offense to his holiness, to his purity, to his perfection. There is none higher than God, so anything that comes in shy of who God is, shy of his holiness, is an offense to him and is deserving of an anger that will snuff it out, that will, that will solve it, that will deal with it. And that's what he did with his son on the cross. Jesus himself, we know, demonstrated anger famously as he went into the temple, saw the abuse of the innocent faithful worshipers getting their, basically their money just stripped from them by those that were supposed to be in charge and supposed to know better. And he, to our view, loses it, which I contend was very much in control, uh, and just starts making a demonstration of anger. He's throwing things around and he's making a point. He's chasing them out with whips and everything because they've defiled his father's house. Was Jesus out of control? I don't think so. Let me give you a very sterile definition of anger. It says, A strong feeling of displeasure or hostility caused by a real or perceived offense, injury, or unmet desire to oneself or others, usually accompanied by a desire to retaliate or seek revenge. I don't know about you, but any anger I've had is not that neat and clean. I don't disagree entirely with this definition, but man, if anger just looked that packaged, if we could just boil it down to, I'm experiencing a severe feeling of displeasure in which I might be tempted to retaliate. You best watch out. <laughs> I wish. 
Our anger is the kind of thing like, what just happened? Where did that come from? Or it's the kind of thing that causes us to retreat and sink and withdraw, start to brood. Ephesians 4 defines this for us a little bit. He says in verse 31, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath, which is kaboom, and anger, which is more of that, oh man, one of these days they're going to get theirs. And we start ruminating on it. We start chewing on it. It starts to live deep down inside of us becomes vengeful he says let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice so paul's not giving us the option of of continuing to exercise the two extremes he says there's something there of balance because we aren't we aren't getting a condemnation of all anger the Bible isn't saying never be angry. Even if you say, well, Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It didn't say don't ever be wrathful. It says don't let it go on too long. And so the Bible's very specific about anger, but doesn't give us the freedom to just constantly be erupting or constantly killing our guts from the inside out because we just can't deal with this thing that makes us so mad. We often think of anger as like catching a cold. Oh, I'm sorry, my anger got the best of me. Like it's a little furry friend that follows you around like one of those, I don't know, those uh, medical commercials or something. I don't know what those weird things are that it's disturbing. But, you know, it's like this little thing that's like, oh, it's not my fault. It's this little guy's fault. My anger got the worst of me. This is not a cold that we catch. It's not a little furry friend that walks around behind us. I don't know where that comes from. That's not in my notes, I promise. Anger is not a thing separate from who you are. Anger is what you dwell on. Anger is your reaction to the things that are not going the way you think they should. Our anger is always directed at someone, whether it be human or above humanity. So anger... We've seen from the demonstration of the Lord, if we had more time, we could share more examples and talk about the right kind of anger and things. But keep in mind, what we're talking about is making the people of faith true in character and conduct because what they say they believe and have faith in is going to be what their works demonstrate. And if you and I are like, oh man, I went down and helped with the cleanup. I threw trash in a bag and the person that, remember I said about uh, Jesus teaching on money because he taught about it more than anything else. If traffic were a problem back then, he would have been close second to, to money. Jesus would have been like, now next time you're in traffic, but there wasn't a traffic problem back then. But for you and me, it's one of the quickest tests of what's going on on the inside. How, how quick are we to be set off? That person cuts you off. Or remember what we said about coming out here? The person doesn't put their left blinker on. Faithers, you putting your left blinker on to turn left on KMD? So sometimes I fail too, but that's where God's grace covers me. As we, as we start to practice those things and we see all of those offenses come our way, how do we react to that? Because that's where our conduct and our character meet our words. And so that's why it's so important for us to take a pause and say, what is James talking about? How can we... I believe that this anger problem, if we're not seeing it all across the, the, the broad sweep of our country, I think we're blind. I think if we're not seeing it across our families, I think we're blind. If we're not noticing it in the checkout lines at our local Walmart, we're blind and deaf. It's everywhere. Imagine God's people getting control of sinful anger. Well, what makes it so sinful? Well, when it's selfishly motivated, 
which is sometimes a hard line to define. Well, I'm standing up for the things of God today. That's why I'm hot under the collar. Maybe. But when God's goals get lost in the shuffle, we can start to go, maybe it's more me. Or if we let it fester, we don't let it get dealt with. Do we think it's a thing of God to let this thing just haunt us and and brood within us? Or would God have a solution? Would he have an answer for us that doesn't allow it to, to chew us up from the inside? Maybe if it goes after a person instead of a problem, let me just kind of quickly show you a a picture that I hope sticks in your mind. This is what we run into so often is um, I talk to people all the time who have a legit problem. There's something really going on. It's not that they've made a mountain out of a molehill. They've got a real problem. Our very first instinct is to blame the other person involved in the problem as though they're the originator of everything that's wrong in my life. And so when we start to attack the person instead of thinking about how are we going to deal with this? I'm not saying we feel great about it or we put on the Christian smile and, oh, what you did didn't offend me at all. I'm fine with it, really, because we have a problem to solve. Let's do it together. We don't feel like that, but man, the way that we bury one another. James 4, as he gets going on this topic, he shares some really brutal language about what we're doing with each other in our relationships because we're going to attack each other instead of saying, how are we going to deal with this problem? And we'll talk about that in a few more minutes. So what are we going to do about it? And like I said, unfortunately, we have to kind of quickly move through this and and wrap some of this up. But I think it will come up over and over again as we move through James because he's not done with this topic. One of the greatest things that you can do in any relationship, don't just say, well, I'm not married or or whatever, or my husband or my spouse is, is not with me anymore, or they don't come to church with me or something like that. In any relationship, what gets in the way between you and me, what would be completely uh, revelational to how you interact with one another, is if you first allow the Lord to search your heart and say, what do I want so badly that I'm willing to jump down this person's throat? What do I want so badly that I'm, I'm unsettled in my being that no matter what they do, they just can't seem to please me? Now, there are, in all relationships, the problem of idolatry is what makes it terrible. Even those that are in abusive relationships are receiving what somebody has decided, my heart needs this, and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. So I'll take it from you, no matter how much you run, no matter how much I hide or scream. I don't care because my heart is fixated on it. And we say, well, those are the extreme cases, those are the big, but we do this to each other all the time. We might be a little more polite about it. We might be a little bit more reserved. But the thing that our hearts want so badly that we're willing to sin in order to have it is the thing that is destroying the relationships around us. James is saying, be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Why? Because the anger of man, here's the key in all this, the anger of man does not achieve what God is trying to do in your life. God's righteousness is not better served by the the half-cocked fly off the handle. It's not served by the person who gets so angry and intense that they shut the door and can't face the world, and so they fester on it, and they'll never tell anybody what they're really feeling inside because they'll get theirs one day. That is not what achieves God's plan. That's not what achieves God's righteousness. We need to take inventory in our specific uh, situation. Do I get angry about the right things? Do I even know what the right things are to get angry about? How much do I know God's word that would inform my, uh, uh, my anger? Uh, am I really getting angry about the things that God gets angry about? And do I take it to a level he never intended me to? Do I express it rightly? 
How long does it last in my life? How in control am I during my times of anger? What kickstarts it? Am I so keyed up going into a situation, oh, that one store, they mistreat me every time, and if they just give me one reason, (laughs) that mechanic, man, he's always taking advantage of me. I tell you, if he just gives me one reason, we go in with our guns blazing ready for a fight, and we're anticipating that that's what they're going to do to us. Do we go in keyed up? And here's the question I think that we all uh, need to ask more and more is what are the consequences of my anger? If I engage in either this explosion or this internalization and packing it down, what's the end result? Where does this go? Does this solve the problem? Or does this bury the other person? What's happening with this? To just think down the road, where is this really going? We need to ask ourselves, what kind of angry am I? Maybe you're balanced, but most of us have a tendency to move in one direction. I know where I stand on this matter. I know which one is my, is my fault and my failure. Am I willing to turn it around? Are we willing to turn it around? We confess it to God and to other people. We ask for forgiveness from God. We know he'll give it. He's promised that he will. If we humble ourselves and go before him, he forgives us of our sin and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then we go to those that we've been angry towards, those that we've offended, and we ask for their forgiveness. Here's my caution for you in this. God has promised his immediate forgiveness. God has made the the path available. He's poured his wrath, his blowing up and his anger. He's poured it all on his son on the cross. So he's dealt with his anger problem by solving the sin problem and killing his son on the cross for you and for me, to put it bluntly. But your wife, your husband, your kids, your coworkers do not have all of that solved and all of that figured out. Here's what we see so often is that the person that has blown it with their family or they've gotten so angry and then they go to that person and they say, well, God's forgiven me. How come you can't? Bible says right here, if you're a real Christian, you'll forgive me. Do we presume that that person has all the same abilities and faculties and just awareness that the Lord has? Or can we at least cut them a little slack and say, if I'm really humble about this, if I'm really repentant, I need to give them time to be willing to forgive me too. When we demand forgiveness from other humans, we've, deter- we've already demonstrated that we are not humble about our sin, that we are not recognizing the damage that we've caused. We pray for help. We repent. We think of ways in which I can get ahead of this anger thing. I know when I go into this situation, that thing always gets me. And I always say things afterwards I wish I hadn't said. You know, do we come up with a new phrase every time we hit our thumb with the hammer? I'm going to say something else because when the kids are around, there's always something I'm going, why did I say that? We come up with a plan of repentance. Lord, I'm guilty of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to do something else in the opposite direction. The gospel calls us to turn this around. Paul continues the next verse down in Ephesians 4. says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See God at work in the trials and the testings of your life. Don't blame everything around you on what other people are doing instead understand that there's a real enemy at work that the the world is not supposed to bend towards our will that things aren't going to go our way and it's not just the other person's fault as to why your life is not going the way you want it to in that moment make room for god to show you his wrath towards the sin that you're experiencing that you're seeing say lord i can't be my sole defender help me to bite my tongue in this moment you come in let me give you room to do your job here. Attempt to return good for evil. Not every opportunity will be received. 
but return good for evil. And use your energy, the energy that anger produces, to solve the problem. Let me show you this last picture, uh, this cute little way in which this can work. Person one says, okay, to person two, I don't know how we're going to do this anymore or how we're going to do this next step and everything, but I know it's better if we're doing this together. And they're just making that effort to say, okay, let's both attack the problem instead of, because here's some of the the other ways we do it. Fine, I'm not going to get angry at them. I'll just deal with it myself. And we still go off and cut the other person out of the equation. Instead of working through our relationships to be people of faith that our works will back up and say, how can I bring others into the solution of the problem with me? James is telling us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry if you want to see the Lord do the righteous things in your life and the lives of people around you that he desires to do. You don't have to take it all in your hands and freak out when it doesn't go your way. This is our challenge, faithers. We can do all the big programs and all the big fun stuff and everything, but if we are not people of integrity and personal conduct, then it's all going to fall apart sometime down the road. So let's join together in that. Can I uh, ask you to stand? We'll close in prayer. Ask the men to stick behind. Ask the ladies to make their way out to the hub. And um, I do want to emphasize to the ladies to try to find Michelle in the center of that as much as you can. She is not going to be the screamiest person the loudest person to get your attention. So find out where she is and what she has for you. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for all that you do. Thank you for allowing us to get into your word in the, in the time that we have. Thank you for what you're even going to continue to do in the, lights, the lives of our people here this morning. God, we ask for control. We ask for um, the ability that comes only from the power of the Holy Spirit to do what our flesh, what our bodies, what our minds will not do in the natural man. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.